This is Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. Today's episode is the final installment of the four-part series we've been doing featuring the best young riders in the American Criterium scene. It wasn't my intent to do it this way, but it seemed naturally to fall towards youngest to oldest, starting with the 19-year-old all the way through to the 25-year-old Owen Galat. The progression is interesting because you can see the different things that happen in different pivotal moments in life that these different riders are adjusting to, confronting. You've got somebody just out of high school starting college in Tyler Reynolds in the next one in Dalton's case, you have somebody who's just getting near to the point of being done with college. And then you move to Celine, who is now out and beginning her professional life. And you've got Owen. And Owen has arrived at this interesting point in, in time in life where priorities of becoming a professional and having things outside of the criterium scene are starting to really impact him. There are choices that he's making, and there are compromises that he has put into his life so that he can continue to be the best bike racer while also recognizing that nobody retires from bike racing, and that's it. Bike racers in the American Peloton need to realize or have come to realize that they need careers and professions for life after bike racing. And that's where Owen is right now, where he's looking at the world around him and saying, I'm 25 years old. I have a full life ahead of me. I've got family ambitions. I've got professional life ambitions, but I still want to be the best bike racer in the world. And I am not yet done with my quest to win certain races, to achieve certain goals. These are the things that he's confronting now. And it's an amazing journey and an amazing story. We are about to take a break after this show. We're going to take a couple of weeks off to gear up for some new content coming forward. We've got a, another episode with our favorite Lily Williams coming back. So there's a lot to look forward to when we return. I want you to listen through to the end of this episode because there is an epilogue that is worth listening to about a somewhat amusing story that happened in, in my own personal life between when this episode was recorded and now when it's being released. But before we get into the show, I want to talk about the Wide Angle Podium Network of Shows, the world's only top-tier collection of independent cycling content. The Wide Angle Podium is where this show is, it's where this show is going to remain, and it's what we've bought into as far as providing colorful, entertaining, and informative content. I want you to consider becoming a member of the network to help support this show, to support shows like Slow Ride Podcast, Cyclocross Radio, Nowhere Fast, other shows that are trying to push forward the envelope of good, quality, independent, creator-owned content that need your help. There's a variety of different ways that you can do it monetarily, through writing reviews, through liking and sharing these podcasts on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, wherever it happens to be. Whatever you choose to do, I want you to know that I personally very much appreciate all of your support and the support of everybody on these shows. 
for that reason, I'm inviting several of the hosts from other shows on the network to come on this show over the next couple of months to talk about some things that are tangential to Criterium Racing, but super important to my life. So you will hear from folks like Michael Bodekheimer or little guy Matt Allen and Zach Schuster about different issues that we think are interesting and that we hope you will find interesting as well. So preludes aside, let's get into it now with our guest, Owen Gillett of Cliff Bar Racing. My name is Owen Gillett. I race for Team Cliff Bar, and I am originally from Australia, but now I live in San Francisco. Owen, have you ever been to a cocktail party in Washington, D.C.? Funny you say that. <laughs> I have. I, I've been to one, actually. Um, my my dad used to work out in uh, D.C., actually, and I went over there to visit him one time. And, you know, being young and stupid and whatever, I was just like swiping away on Tinder, matched up with this this girl, and lo and behold... I go to meet her, you know, she says, dress nice. I rock up and we're in like this penthouse sort of bar cocktail thing. And yeah, it was a great night. Well, I certainly was not expecting yes for that answer. I wasn't expecting that question. The reason I asked the question is because different cities in the country and in the world are known for certain things. Like you've got New York City, which is the city that never sleeps. You could do whatever you want at 3 a.m. You can find whatever kind of food that you're interested in. You know, it just it's just that place. Chicago, it's the city for comedy clubs and for stand-up and improv. Seattle has top quality coffee. DC is the place for cocktail parties. No idea why, but that's just what this city is all about. You become exceptionally good at holding a glass of wine or beer or cocktail in one hand. In the other hand, you've you've got a small plate of hors d'oeuvres, yet you're still able to eat, drink, shake hands, mingle, do all those sort of things at the exact same time. It's kind of like an art form, but it also leads to these really strange almost formulaic conversations where you get the same three introductory questions. The first is, where, where are you from? Because you're clearly not from here. The second is, what do you do? And then the third is, basically, what can you do for me? Now, this interview is kind of going to follow that pattern with the exception of the third question, because we don't need you to do anything for us other than just make us laugh and entertain us and share some good information. But let's start with Geography Corner here. You're from Brisbane. Not a lot of people in the United States know exactly how Australian geography works. So where in Australia is Brisbane? Funnily enough, there is a Brisbane actually in San Francisco, but here it's pronounced Brisbane. Um, which is the, the the stereotypical way that Americans pronounce it. But yeah, it's, it is Brisbane. And if you're looking at a map of Australia, if you look at the right-hand side, about halfway down, that's where the border between Queensland and New South Wales is. And then, you know, it, it's essentially halfway down on the right-hand side of Australia. So we, we call it the, the southeast Queensland is where Brisbane is. But it's southeast of Queensland and Queensland is is northeast. So it's a little bit convoluted, but it's essentially the middle on the right-hand side of Australia. 
something I've always loved about Australia and Aussies is the names. And I don't know where they come from or how they've gotten here, but you have the best names for places that I've ever seen. So like just around Brisbane, you've got Toowoomba. Toowoomba. And then Jim Boba or Jim Bob. Then you've got places like Willy Willy. I could listen to you pronounce these all day. This is great. Do you guys literally just walk around all day laughing at how things are pronounced because they're hilarious. Pretty much. Like, there's another good one. You know, we've got um, Indra Pili, and the joke for that one used to be Indora Pili is how you, you know, phonetically sound it out. But, you know, you've got, like, what's – there's some other good ones out there. There's Maruka, there's Nanda. So the our naming convention stems a lot from the Aboriginal language. It's, you know, that tribe name for whatever – plot of land that it, the new cities obviously were built on. So a lot of it comes from the Aboriginal language. And in their language, they used a lot of O's and W's. And it was a very like ooh sort of sounding language. So that's why we get these really long, like you've got Toowoomba, Indrapilly, uh, Maruka, like they're all these sort of O-ish sounding names. And that's that's where all almost a lot of you know Australia's language uh, cities stem from. And here's what I have problems with still conceptually. I know I'm a grown adult who's got a degree and all those things, but because it's in the Southern Hemisphere and Brisbane's on the Northern half of Australia, the weather in Brisbane is a lot nicer year round than is, say, the weather down in Sydney. So it's it's really nice. It's it's hot a lot of the year. Um, so, you know, people are most familiar with Sydney and Melbourne. Melbourne, I would say, is it's almost directly opposite um, uh, latitudinally than San Francisco. So you get a lot of the same climates. You get, you know, cold, foggy, sort of eh weather. But Brisbane, it's far enough up. It's closer to the equator, but not too close that you get this like awesome tropical environment. So even in the winter, like the really, you know, crappy months of the year, it's not actually that cold. It's, I mean, I'm going to speak in English. Like it's probably, you know, 13 degrees when it's really cold in Brisbane. And I remember as a kid training, like I'd be wearing leg warmers and arms and a big jacket thinking it was so cold, you know, training in the early morning. And then my first winter in San Francisco was like 2013 and I was not prepared at all. But but the weather there, it's um, it's really good. The like the just the coastal environment. You get this warm swell, and the coast because anywhere in Brisbane is essentially a forty-five minute drive from the ocean. So it's it's just a really tropical environment. I want to go back to those first couple of days or years here in the United States, and specifically go back to a story that I heard about you going to Tahoe. Now, this was early on the time that you were here in the United States, and Tahoe is obviously at elevation, and this is a story that comes from the winter. San Francisco does have some swings in climate, but Tahoe, that's proper winter. That's zero degrees centigrade, 32 degrees Fahrenheit. What was that like coming from Brisbane to actual real winter? It was really tough in the beginning because, like I said, you know, I I came over going. I know what cold is. You know, I've I've raced in Melbourne. I've raced in Sydney in winter. I can I can deal with the cold, 
but it's it's nothing in comparison when you you do get to the real the real cold and the first couple of races in california we start really early obviously because california has better weather than the rest of the country so there's there's races that we have in january and even them there there was an initial shock where i started racing in you know leg warmers vest long sleeve jacket like undershirts the whole nine yards and i couldn't activate my body like i just couldn't turn my legs over quick enough because as uh, when I first came, I was still actually a junior. So I was racing early in the morning as juniors do. They're often the first ones off. And then I'd double up to race later in the afternoon in the P12 field. And that's when I could actually go, oh, now I can ride my bike again because I'm warm and the weather's a little bit nicer. But yeah, it really, it struck me pretty hard that I couldn't turn my legs over just because I wasn't prepared for how cold it was going to be. What's it like as far as the race scene in Queensland and New South Wales, you know, the basically like the entire East Coast of Australia? It's pretty good. We have um, what's called an NRS series, which is similar to like the PRT in America. And the so it's just the National Race, uh, NRS, yeah, National Race Series. So because Australia is so East Coast dominated, all these races just happen up and down on the East Coast. Um, I think nowadays there might be one out in Perth, but when I was racing, maybe not. So there, there is a decent amount of top-level racing. But like I said, I left Australia when I was a junior. So a lot of what I was doing was was junior-level racing and then, you know, just racing up categories for the for the fun of it. But in, in Brisbane alone, there there is a lot of criterium racing. There's You have to go a little bit further out to get road racing, definitely. And every now and then, there would be, you know, like a three-day weekend, like we I uh, think it was called the Sizzling Summer Series or something like that. You know, it was like a time trial, Kermis sort of style, and then a, a longer road race or maybe a crit to mix it up. That It's not like in America where every weekend there is a race anywhere in the country, and especially in California, you can drive to a race anywhere you want any single weekend, any day of the year. In Australia, I would race maybe like 20 times in a year. And I think my first year racing in America, I did like 87 races or something, like something insane like that, or 87 race days. So just the comparison of the amount of racing in America was exponentially larger. Why did you end up coming to the States? Like I said earlier, my my dad got a job out here. And it just ha- so happened to coincide with I had uh, been on the Australian national program uh, for track. I'd been working well with them. And I'd kind of gotten to the point where I was always fourth or fifth man. You know, I put it in pursuit terms. I'm a big track guy. Everyone wants to have, you know, that one or two spots. So they're getting selected for every event. And I felt like I should have been there. But for some reason, I just wasn't getting sent to the right events and the the coaches just weren't taking, you know, they weren't taking me seriously enough, which was starting to frustrate me. So it coincided with, I, I lived with my uncle uh, down in Adelaide, which is where, you know, track is huge in Australia. And it just wasn't working out for me. And my dad got this opportunity in America and I started thinking, well, may, maybe I'll just go out there. Maybe I'll see what the scene is there. I've always heard that there's great racing. And I, I knew at the time, uh, like one of my teammates now, Joe Lewis, I raced with, I didn't race directly with him. He was a little bit older than me, but I knew that he'd made that transition to America. And I figured, hell, you know, my dad's going there. What's, why not, why not me? I, I can jump on that ship as well. 
So you were about 17 years old at the time and you just rocked right up to your first race? Yeah, I'd, I'd done a little bit of research with teams as to what was good. And back then it was, there was, you know, the Lux, there was Team Swift, I think was another one, and then Specialized. And I'd reached out to Larry Nolan, the, he was, you know, the head junior coach at the time, I think in in the States. And I've reached out to him and this was earlier. So this was 2012. I came over for three weeks just to try it out and see what it was. And there was a, a race called, um, called the little city stage race. And I came out here to essentially ride for specialized as, you know, a guest rider. And this is back when specialized had, I think like 22 kids or something on the program. They were a really big program at the time. So I was kind of part of the team, not really part of the team, trying to show my worth. It was This was a long time ago. We're talking eight or nine years ago now. I, I think I finished second overall after the three days, and, and that seemed to impress Larry enough to, to give me a spot for the following year in 2013. So that having that fallback of I, I now have a team that I can go to when I go there. I think that's what really sealed the deal because otherwise I would have just stayed, you know, kicking around the the track program and seeing what came of that. When does this become a permanent thing here in the United States as opposed to just a fly back and forth between Australia and the US? That's a really loaded question. So permanent Every time this conversation has come up, you know, whether it be with my dad and whatever job he was doing or my career with what I'm doing, it's always, I'll give it another year. I'll give it another year and we'll see what happens. And year after year after year, it's now been nine years and I'm still here. So it didn't necessarily become permanent, I wouldn't say, until probably two years ago at this point. It was always like, oh, I'll just see what the next step is, what the next thing is, what the next thing is. And then, you know, then I got the job, then I got the girlfriend, and that's kind of really what solidified the, okay, now, now it's permanent. It kind of sounds like how I approach criteriums, you know, just one more lap, just one more lap, and then all of a sudden you find yourself off the front and you're like, oh, shoot, I got 45 minutes left to go over this. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir there. <laughs> so let's talk about the job. You have chosen a profession that is time-consuming. It's not an easy profession, and it's one that doesn't really allow you a lot of room for training and a lot of room for life around training. So what is it that you do, and where is it going? Yeah, so I'm a detailed drafter, which is essentially like some form of architecture. I'm the guy that draws the blueprints that buildings get built from. That's that's what I do. And you're right, it does take up a lot of time. It's it's a full-time job. And it was, you know, full-time studying to even get the job just to get my foot in the door. But it's it's 40 hours a week, if not more, every week, just sitting at a desk drawing or going to sites and, you know, overseeing construction or, you know, fixing problems as they they happen in the field, that kind of thing. So it's a pretty full-on job, but I'm really lucky in the sense that uh, my boss is an ex-Olympic downhill skier. So she she understands the level at what I'm doing. And she gives me a little bit of leeway here and there, especially for travel with our races because we're gone so much of the year. But her, her thing she said to me was when she gave me a job, she said, when you're here, you're here working for me. When you're away racing, don't think about work. And that's it's really the only reason that I still have a job is the fact that I have this on-off where, okay, now I'm racing, now I can think about this. And now I'm at work, and now I've got to think about my job. 
How do you do that? What's the secret sauce for being able to turn everything on and then turn everything off at the at the times that you need to so that you can maximize work and life? That's an excellent question. And I haven't ever really put too much thought to it, but I can tell you, I think a lot of it stems from from my dad. He he was a military man his whole life, you know, dropped out of family, I guess. He he grew up in rural Australia. Um, left home, joined the military at 16. He's kind of, you know, a lifer. But then 20 years ago now, started studying, became an IT professional and has, you know, climbed the ladder that way. But growing up in a military family, there is, I don't want to say you're always taking orders, but you understand that there's layers to things and there's stuff that you don't need to know. And it, it is that kind of, need to know basis, which I'm trying to, you know, loop this back to it being, yes, this is what we're doing this instant. Shut up, listen to it, do it, get it done. We'll talk about, you know, whatever it is after the fact. It's, you know, here's an order, fill out the order. Now, now think about what you just did. So I think a lot of it does stem from that. And, you know, my dad's just a very analytical zeros and ones type guy. And I think a lot of that has rubbed off on me of, I can just go, okay, you know, this is what I need to focus on right now. And nothing else matters except this one thing that I'm doing. The approach that your boss has taken to you and your racing kind of sounds a lot like the approach that my boss has taken with me and my racing. He's a randonneur, so he does brevets. And if I use another French word with my terrible Chicago accent, I'm going to apologize. But because he understands bikes, because he understands athletics, you know, we were able to have this adult conversation about being able to maximize time in different ways. But I don't remember the chicken or the egg of the conversation between my boss and myself with, I will work X hard for Y purposes. But in addition to getting my 40 hours a week in, I'd like to take off and go race intelligentsia. Do you recall what it was like for you when you were having that conversation with your boss about, I'm all in for this conversation, I'm all in for this job, I'm all in for this project, but in addition to that, I have another side to my person, and that's bike racing, and I want to go off to Bucks County this week. Yeah, it was it was definitely early on. Because th- that was the conversation starter, which is why I ended up on her team of, you know, oh, I'm a I'm an athlete. And she goes, oh, I also, you know, used to be an athlete. I still, you know, I still get out and do stuff now. So that was kind of initially the just the foot in the door of like we, we can relate on a, on a sporting level. And the fact that she competed at such a high level, I think she understands that need that and it it did take a bit of me going okay this is the level that I'm at you know I'm racing here I'm actually I'm not just your you know your weekend warrior doing this I'm actually out here doing something and you know this this career of being an architect that's what I want that's why I'm here but I also have this you know other full-time job as well and I think the just her you know having probably gone through that many a time in her life as well was very understanding. And yeah, I don't really know how it came up. It was just one of those things, like you said, of chicken or the egg. But, you know, now I can can get out and, uh, you know, travel to these races when I want to. But the training aspect of it is definitely 100% on me. 
there's no like knockoff at you know two o'clock in the afternoon. It's very much you're you're working your full day, and then whatever you want to do after that is your time. So th- there's no leeway there, unfortunately. But how do you do it? How do you actually do it? Because you're at the tip top end, not just of bike racing, but also of your profession. You have to put in the time. You have to put in the training. You have to put in the kilometers. You can't get by on just a few minutes a day here. How is it that you're able to stay competitive among the best people in the country and also stay competitive as a professional? You you really have to give up a lot of other things. And that sounds really depressing to say that, but you have to value what you want to get out in life. And I want to be, still be a good competitive cyclist. So that means that, oh, I, you know, I can't go out for Friday night beers with the guys because I've got to wake up super early on Saturday and go ride, you know, eight or nine hours or, you know, whatever it might be. So there are times where you have to take a little bit for yourself and say, no, this is this is for me. I can't, you know, do this or I can't go to that. But at the end of the day, I think it just comes down to personal drive. Like again, my it, a lot of my career stems back to my dad, and he really brought me up to to be the man that I am now. And he gave me that you can do this, you can do one thing, you know, really well. You just have to focus on that one thing. So you can't half-ass it, and there's no point half-assing anything. So if you're gonna do something, do it. And I, I've applied that to everything in my life. That if I really want to do something, I will make the time, and I will. I will push myself to achieve that thing so that when I have a goal, I go and get it. And it's not just, oh, you know, damn, next time. Now, you've clearly made choices. You just have to look at the volume of racing that you've done in your life. There was a point in time in 2016 and 2017 that you clearly made a choice to focus on very specific events, very high-level events, and shelve the more large volume of races because you went from about over 50 races a year to eventually 17. Now you're still averaging way more races than the average person is these days. But was this because you had to make choices about your profession and earning a living and your job that you cut down on the amount of racing that you were doing? Yeah, that was exactly it. Um, Like I said, I think actually as a junior, the 83 or whatever number I spat out before, I think I raced 120 times because Larry, our our old coach, had um, our name, our race days, and then our race wins um, on the van, on the windows. I don't know if you ever remember seeing the Specialized van, but it was covered in stickers. Oh, yeah. I remember that van real well. It showed up randomly at a race in middle of nowhere, California that I was at. That sounds about right. And it was a legit group of juniors. Yeah. So, you know, it it went from let's, let's call that 2013 of roughly 120 races to, like you said, 2019, 17 or something like that. And I don't think what you're looking at probably counts all the local races and things like that, that I've done because I definitely raced more than 17 days. But you're right. There's definitely been a downward trend. And that 2016, 2017 timeframe, like you said, was when I started getting a real job. You know, I went from working in a bike shop to being, you know, a full-time employee at an architect firm. So yes, it, it does take a big hit. And then you have to go, okay, what is really important to me? What races do I really want to target? And 
what what's what's more valuable? Is it is it you know winning this local crit, or you know up in Tahoe that I've had to take you know two days off work to go up there and get like Reno, like going to Reno. That's for me. That's like a three day trip. It might not seem that far, but it really wipes you out. Or do I fly across the country and do I do you know like like a Bucks County and you know try to place really well there? So it's I'm now targeting specific races in these late a few years because I just don't have the availability of time anymore. Now that you're 25 and I can say this because I'm 42 and I'm so much older than you now. I'm an, I'm an elite now. I'm no longer a junior. I was as I, I always classify under 25 as still as juniors. I'm I'm now a big boy. So now as a big boy in your life, you're trying to establish yourself. You've got the girlfriend, you've got the job. You're almost done with your education towards your full-time professional career and you've got this bike racing career what do you see yourself doing in five ten years because this is a pivotal moment in your life one thing that i didn't mention was children you don't have any children right now but that might be something in the next five ten years so looking forward towards your my age towards your 40 what do you think your life is going to look like? Oh, man, my my life will be over by then. I'm going out in a blaze of glory over a cliff with the motorcycle. That's my plan. You, you and me both. I, I kind of, I've always lived that way. It's like, why why wait? You know, like uh, there's definitely, you have to do a little bit of planning for the future. I don't, I don't want to get, you know, people down the wrong road there. But it's like, hell, if, if you want to do something, just get out there and do it. But, you know, five, 10 years down the road, I think kids are on the radar in the future that, you know, marriage, wife, kids, all that, all that good stuff is definitely on the radar, but I, I've achieved a lot and I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but I I've been writing this. I think this year it will be my 17th season writing. So I've been doing this for a long time and I've achieved, you know, a lot of things that I want to achieve. There's not much left on the list. Yeah. I, you know, eventually I will give up racing competitively i'll still ride and i'll still race you know locally i'm sure wherever i am that's that's kind of ingrained in my dna at this point but i want to pursue other things we were watching uh something on tv the other day about the crossfit games and uh, the world championships were in dubai and out of like the 12 events something stupid like nine of them were cardio it was like go swim in the ocean go run a marathon you know ride a stationary but it's like I can do this. Like this is something easily tangible that I can achieve. And yeah, you know, someone might be able to lift 500 pounds and I can only lift 200 or whatever. But if I beat you in every other event, it doesn't matter. So it's just something different that I want to I want to pursue. Obviously still in the sporting realm, but I just want to I want to get out there and try new things. But I don't I don't, don't want to give up on cycling until I feel comfortable having achieved everything I've wanted to. What are the goals that you haven't achieved yet? What are the things that you're sitting there saying to yourself, I'm going to do this? So for right now, there's two major ones on my list. We'll start with the the lesser of the one. I want to win Tour of America's Dairylands. That has been on my list for years. I think since 2014, that's been on my radar. I've known about this race. I've gone to this race. I've, I think I've been there five times and I've finished second overall three times and third once and like sixth another time or something like that. 
And it, it just so happens that every time I've gone there with a competitive team, the one year, the the first year that I got second, we went there with a really strong competitive team. And like day five, one of my teammates gets crashed out, breaks his arm. You know, day six, two of them come down with a cold. And it's just, it was, you know, always that trend of something got in the way of achieving, you know, that that final step. And I've I've always come really close and never quite clutched the victory. So I really want to I want to win Toad. That's still on my radar. And the other goal is I want to I want to compete for a nation. And I go, I have have come very close to competing for Australia. I was was on the radar for the the Rio Olympics, but unfortunately got sick month out. You know, and that always being the fifth the fifth floating man. I I didn't, you know, make the cut for that. So I got pushed back a step. The guy, you know, jumped up in front of me. It's disappointing because they went on to go win gold at the event that I would have been racing in. So, you know, I, I want to go to a big event like that and I want to represent. And I'm in this awesome opportunity now where enough years have gone by that I've lived in America that I can now apply for citizenship within the next year or so, and then I can pursue that path. And I'll still be able to, you know, have a shot at going to a world champs, you know, within the next two or three years before I, I you know, I reach the the 30 mark, the, the horrifying 30s where it all comes crashing down. Yeah, your back starts to hurt and it's pretty much all downhill from there. Oh, my back's been hurting for years. <laughs> That, I think that's just part of being a cyclist, isn't it? Yeah. I've spent a lot of time with chiropractors and massage therapists and all of those types of ergonomics specialists. And I can tell you for a matter of fact, it's not like swimming or track. You're hunched over. That's the way it is. Yeah. My, my girlfriend always knows how to spot me in a race because I have a very distinct, I, I got hit by a car and broke my back pretty bad. I have a very distinct, nice curve, you know, what you want to see. And then it's almost like a right angle, like 10 centimeters above my hips. My back just bends. And she goes, I can always pick you out of, out of the bunch because you're the only one that's got this like severe right angle in your back. Since we're talking about Australia national team, Australian citizens, I want to ask you this question about the people who are coming from Australia to the United States to race. I've had the fortune of being able to race at a lot of the big crit series in the country, all over the nation, and because I'll race a master's race or a 1-2 race, I get there at different times, so I get to see the start of the women, the finish, the men's. I get to see a lot. And in that time, I've gotten to know the different riders that I see. And so I want to see if you notice a trend here in the Aussies that I've come to know. So you've got Peter Mullins, Jen Domedy, Charlotte Culver, Emma Roberts, Minda Murray. You have all of these women. Are there no men from Australia coming over to the United States? Are you you know, the one and only? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think it leads back to, how do I put this without saying insulting? Um, there's, there is a very, Australia churn out very good cyclists and you're, we are very good juniors. That's, you know, why I've been racing for so long is because in Australia, you have to have made it by your under 19s age. Like if you're not on a professional, you know, team radar at that point, 
then you might as well throw in the towel. Like my friends growing up that I used to, you know, ride and race with, some of them were world champions and they retired, you know, they were world champion juniors and they retired, you know, 22, 23 to, ne- to never pick up a bike again. Australia, they develop really young athletes that are very good. And I think the program, it burns you out. There's a lot of burnout. And if you just look statistically, men versus women just racing globally, the average age of men is a lot younger than it is for women because your peak, this might be a bit controversial, your peak for a man, I would say, is that sort of 25 to 30 range in the pro tour. If you look at the women's pro tour, it's sort of a bit later. It's that 30s to 40s range. And I think there's a lot of that is the men or the male athletes, especially from Australia, just get really burnt out at a super young age. And the ones that, you know, do go really far and, you know, make these world championship level stuff, they get picked up on the the pro tour teams and are living in Europe racing. So I think it's, it is a lot of, you either get burnt out or you make it. And there's not many like myself that kind of, we didn't get burnt out. We didn't achieve what we wanted, but we still want to keep racing. Oh, America pays good money. Let's go there. Since 2018, you've been on Team Cliff Bar and- this is not the Team Cliff Bar episode. We have a whole special coming up with Kevin, Connor, Chris, Zach about what is Team Cliff Bar. But for purposes of today, this is a team of teams. You are the 2019 USA Crits U25 champ with Team Cliff Bar. With that team, with the competition at USA Crits, I want to have this conversation about what it means to you, but I want to start with this. How did you end up on Cliff Bar? I was racing with Echelon Stork Development. They were, again, like a junior under 23 sort of program. Um, I'd raced with them for two years and they were doing the, the PRT series and just kind of getting by. But the more and more I looked at PRT and my style of racing, it didn't line up. Every road race in America nowadays ends on a hill and is, you know, it's your your Cascade Classics or your Tour of the Gila. They're all these insanely hilly courses that I just, I can hang and I can feed and I can service riders. But at the end of the day, I wasn't getting anything personally out of it. So I split away from them and I wanted to get back to crits. Like I'd had, I'd had success at racing Tour of the Americas Dairylands and, um, you know, the Bucks County Classic and all these big crits. And I wanted to get back to crit racing and and really just start making money again. At the end of the day, I was floating in this. This was before my job. Now I was working in a bike shop. You know, making nothing like no one ever does in a bike shop. And I just went, okay, let's let's get back to some real fun racing that I enjoy. And I took a survey of the teams and. I'd just come off a race. I was racing in Asia and one of the old cliff riders, Blake Anton, he rides for Mark Pro Strava now. And he had just on a whim kind of suggested like, yeah, you'd be a really good fit at cliff. And that had been toiling over me when we were racing together in China. So I reached out to Dylan as soon as I got home, had a call with him. And he said, oh man, you know, unfortunately, like we're already booked up for the 2018 season. We've got, you know, I think it was 19 guys on the team at that point. I don't know. Well, we'll see what happens. And then two weeks later, I get another call back. He's like, yeah, actually, 
I think, you know, I think we can move some funds around and make some stuff work. So that again was, was kind of my foot in the door and yeah, it's, it's an incredible team to be part of. That's for sure. We talked about this a little bit in the green room, but one of the things that I wanted to talk about was this U25 competition in 2019. And I can't believe that's now two years ago. It's crazy, right? And neither of us have raced much in the way of anything since then. I did one race last year, one race in January, and then that was it. And I did one race in March, and that was it. And I can tell you right now, I want to race badly. I need competition in my life. I raced a 13-year-old kid the other day on the bike path. (laughs) He was on like his little Trek hybrid, and I was riding by him on the road, and he decided to keep up with me, and I was just like, okay, fine. Let's drag race. Let's do this. Yeah, you you got to squash those dreams really early. You know, it was a a mile of just pure power, and my ego is very, very small and fragile. Don't worry. Mine's fragile. But back to this... U25 competition and the very basic question of whether or not this is an accomplishment. I think it is an accomplishment because you are the best under 25 year old rider from 2019. But the question is, how does that develop? Cause I have a feeling that you didn't exactly start the season off saying to Zach and ginger one and two, Hey guys, I want to have this team win the U25 competition and I'm going to be the guy who does it. So tell us how it developed. So it developed in a really interesting way. And I'll give you a little bit of a a quick backstory, like the first three races before it even popped on my radar. The first one was the Birmingham uh, Hammer Classic or Hammer Fest, I think it was called. And at the time, there were a bunch of snowstorms and stuff happening in Colorado, which is where all of my other teammates are from. So to this race, I was the only one on my team that made it there because a bunch of flights got canceled, so they couldn't get out. Um, did that race. I think I ended up getting like a flat with three laps to go or something, but then there was a crash and I got back in, you know, finished top 10, something like that. I forget exactly what it was. So that one was kind of like a non-event for me. And then we went to El Paso and that was you know, the the real sort of start to the season. And we did incredibly well. I think Ginger won. He won the race. And then Joe Lewis got fourth or fifth from – there was a breakaway up the road. So Joe won the pack sprint and then I got sixth or something. So I was, you know, in terms of overall standings, we're already pretty good after, you know, one or two races. So we had dominated the team's classification. We had the yellow jersey. And we're we're looking really good. And then after that was Athens. And Athens was a shit fight. It got, it was just, yeah, I think Steve Cullen said it the best. It was gloves off, like punch fest. It was pretty insane of hit after hit out of every single corner. And that one, I didn't even finish that race because we had the yellow jersey at the or the orange jersey at the time, sorry. And there was this massive crash kind of halfway through the race. They reshuffled the pack so that us that were at the front, we were now, you know, 70 wheels back because for some reason they let the crashed riders start on the front. So I spent the next like 25 minutes pulling Kevin and Joe, I think it was, back to the front of the race and, you know, just essentially imploded myself. I'm not that kind of rider. I can't pull people to the front of a bike race. I don't do that. I get towed to the front of a bike race. (laughs) That's what I do. 
So yeah, I didn't even finish Athens. And then, then after that, what happened after Athens? This is when it started coming together. We were at um, Tulsa Tough. And originally I wasn't even going to go to Tulsa Tough. I wasn't on the radar and I, I begged and pleaded with Dylan to put me on the squad. So I flew out there for, I think I was only in town for like 31 hours or something. Landed hot, did the race, ended up getting fourth, I think. It seemed at that point, I started looking at the results and I was like, every time that I'm actually competing, I'm getting in the top 10 here. And I'm, I'm actually, I'm probably in with a shot for something like this. So why not pursue it? And then from there, I, I think the next big break was when we hit Littleton. And that's when I took the under 25 jersey without even realizing it. It was the same thing. Living at sea level here, there's, there's like ocean water behind me. Like I live at zero. And we go to Colorado, which is, I think, you know, it's like 5,000 feet or something. I'm up there. I'm asthmatic. I can't breathe at the best of times, right? So I'm like, I'm sucking major wheel, just, you know, groveling to try to stick with it. And it seemed like everyone else that had showed up to that race. We had the twins, we had um, Paul and Stu, and I think Joe was there as well. But it just seemed like I was in front of everyone the whole race and I was hurting like majorly. So, I, you know, I just kept sucking wheels as all good sprinters do. And it got to the point where I was like, oh, shit, this is like five laps to go. I need to switch my sprint brain on right now. And I went for it. And again, there was a big crash and, you know, I think two turns to go as there always is at Littleton. And again, I got fourth. I, I couldn't quite break that podium uh, level, but I got fourth again. And then after the race, Dylan comes up to me. He's like, hey, I think you might be in the under 25 liters jersey. I was like, huh? Yeah, may maybe. Like I've been, I've been doing, you know, consistently well whenever I'm not, whenever I'm actually finishing the race. And that was when it was put on my radar of like, oh, you know, we're, we're like five races into this season now, five or six to go. I could really, really do something here. Where does your personal ambition for this jersey fit in with the team ambition? You, you gain the jersey at Littleton, which is the second to last race of the season. You only had Westchester left after that. You took it from Cade Bickmore from Avolo, who was your competition, but he wasn't showing up at these last couple of races. You did have Spencer Movenzada of ButcherBox kind of nipping at your heels too, so there is an actual competition. But when you show up at Westchester and you're there with the Team Cliff Bar guys and you're up there against ButcherBox, who's trying to take the overall team championship from you at that exact same race, how does that play out, personal versus team ambition, right there in that all-hands-on-deck fight between you and ButcherBox for that overall competition at Westchester. Our rule of thumb is if you're having fun, results don't matter. That's what Dylan has always stuck by. He doesn't care about results. He cares that we're having fun and we're portraying Cliff Bar in the best image possible. And every, you know, every time we put on the kit, whether it's a training ride or a race or, you know, whatever it might be, we are ambassadors for Cliff. So we want to do the best that we can for them as a company. We had always had the aspiration of the team's classification, but going into the 2019 season, we'd just come off 2018 where we were winning it. So going into the 2019 season, 
we'd taken kind of a different approach. We went, okay, we've won the we've won the teams classification. Let's see if we can win the overall, or let's see if we can just win a race, or let's see what else we can achieve. So that whole season, we weren't really trying for the teams classification. Obviously, we want to. We want to win whatever we can. But it was more, let's take each individual race and see what we can do with it. Let's not worry about, you know, for Boise, Boise was a great example. It was, let's not worry about the following races. Let's go, what's the best outcome that we can have for this exact race? I think it was actually probably more or less around the time of Boise where, correction, I was thinking of, uh, I earlier referred to it as Littleton, but I was actually thinking of Boise was where it came onto my radar of, oh, I could, I could probably win this. Um, I got, I got my races mixed up. We raced so much, but it was that race where I was at the front of the race, you know, with about 20 laps to go. I, I had Paul there. I had Zach there and one of two twins that, you know, they're identical. I can't remember, but we were all at that race going, okay, like who feels good? Who's doing what? And Prior to that going in, we'd gone, let's win this. This is our hometown race. Let's hit this one really hard. At that, like at that meeting beforehand, that's when I'd realized that, oh, I could I can possibly win this. So I had to then come up to the guys and be like, hey, here's my position. Like I'm second overall to Cade right now. If I, you know, if I get in the top 10 or whatever, then I can probably, you know, start making an indent towards the back half of the season. And our goal is always let's just do as good as we can, but be happy, like I said. So essentially it was, I need to do what I need to do for me, but also help the team goal at the same time. And it was just really perfect that this year coincided with, we're not going to do a team thing. We're going to just try to win whatever we can. So it kind of really worked out well for me that I could pursue my little piece on the side and still contribute to the team goal. Because it wasn't necessarily, we need to win teams classification. It was, let's just see what else we can do because we've already got that. Now you've aged out. You're 25, which means you're technically 26 in racing age. I know it's weird. America doesn't make much sense, but we get by. Yeah, tell me about it. What do you do now? Is it, I want to win the overall? Yeah, like I said, um, and what I referred to a little bit earlier as well with the other, you know, goals and aspirations that I have. So I got, I was the lead uh, under 25 rider and I finished third overall that year. Um, I completely forget that I finished third. I figure, and you know, this is pre-COVID, the the good old, old days. Um, going into 2020, I was like, hell, I finished third last year. Like I want my goal this year to be, I want to win the, win the damn thing. Like, I got third and under 23 and I didn't finish like three races and, and, and so, you know, why not, why not come back even stronger and win the, win the whole, whole thing. So that was my goal for last year. And we're going to have a team uh, call tomorrow actually. And we're all going to sit down and, you know, evaluate what we want to achieve out of this year. So I've got some things that I don't want to let on too much right now. But the aspiration is still there to come back and to win the thing because I, I came third last year or two years ago without really even trying. And the, the next two steps are very hard steps. To get that to, you know, to get first is going to be very difficult. So I think that's, that's the, the current goal. But yeah, there's, there's other stuff down the road that I'm looking forward to as well. Who's going to be the smart ass on the call for you guys? 
I'm not the stand-up comic in the family. That's my my cousin. So I'm just going to say, insert funny joke here. Who's the guy who's going who's gonna to tell that joke? Yeah, that's, that's the awesome thing about Cliff, right? Is every single one of us is a dumbass. We all have these, we, everyone has their moment. You know, there's, there's the standouts, like you've got your Joe Lewis and your Zachs who are always switched on 24-7 and you say one thing and they're jumping on you. Like they're, they're in there with their little comment and everyone laughs. But every single person on this team, and I think it's almost a prerequisite to being on the team, is everyone is funny. You might not hear it. Like Paul, he's kind of a quiet guy. But every now and then we'll be at a coffee shop and someone will say something and then like Paul, like three seats down from you under his breath will say like this really funny little comment and like maybe only one person picks it up. But it is the funniest thing. You can make the prediction that it'll actually be Dylan. He tends to come up with some, he's got some really like old school humor that is just, it hits you when you need it the most. Well, best of luck on that call. And we're going to be following you all throughout 2021 to see if you can start nailing these goals that you've set for you. Thank you absolutely so much, Owen, for joining us on the show. Yeah, no worries. It was awesome. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the show. Today's episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly. As a bit of a correction, and we do need to make a little bit of a correction here, Owen seems to suffer from the same symptoms that I suffer in when it comes to my own past athletic performances, in that I get better and better as I get further and further away. In Owen's case, he said that he had finished third in the 2019 individual competition, the reality is he finished fourth. So he's not nearly as bad as I am now because I, I know that I've won so many national championships that I may have in reality placed fifth or sixth on all these years later. But just so that we're 100% clear, the, the, the podium for the 2019 individual champion for USA Crits was uh, Tom Gibbons of Automatic Racing, followed by Connor Saley of ButcherBox, and then Justin Williams of Legion of Los Angeles before we got to Owen Jalot from Team Cliff Bar. So just a little bit of a correction there that needs to be made. But otherwise, Owen is probably spot on about all the other factual details of his life. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we're about to take a couple of weeks of a break to re-gear, retool, get ready for some new content coming forward. I also promised a fun epilogue to the interview that I did with Owen. In it, we mentioned uh, a kid who I ended up drag racing a little bit on MacArthur Boulevard. Well, a few days after Owen and I did this interview, I ran into the same kid again. And it was a little further out, and we were able to ride together all the way basically back into Washington, D.C., him on the bike path, me on the actual road itself. They're right next to each other. So... We got to talking, and he's been in the sport for a couple of years, casually riding, doing bike packing, and those sort of things. And as we were riding along, and he had no trouble keeping up with me. This was, this is actually really impressive for somebody riding on basically what's a hybrid bike. And I think it inspired him because at the end of the at the end of the time when we split and went our separate ways, he was going to the National Mall. I was going home. He told me that he had just 
made an application for a job, for summer jobs. I don't have any clue how old he is. I'm guessing 15, maybe 16 years old. But his sole goal now is to earn enough money in a summer or part-time job to buy a road bike because he wants to go faster and he wants to train further and longer and harder. And I love it. I love everything about it. That's what I hope this sport and this podcast is about, is encouraging people to embrace bikes in their own way. It doesn't necessarily have to be through criterium racing or racing at all, but just embracing outdoor activity and being active and doing things that you want to do that help make you a better person and a better all-around human being. We'll see you in a couple of weeks to tell you more stories about our Criterium Nation.